One of the things that really struck me um, is that the way people have read Romans tends to be that they do a run landing on Romans 3.23, all sinned and came short of the glory of God. And they assume that that's the sum total of everything Paul has said up to that point. But when Paul begins the great exposition with chapter 1, verse 18, sin isn't the first thing he mentions. The first thing he mentions is idolatry, or rather asabia, which means ungodliness. And for Paul, idolatry, like, like for the Jews, idolatry is the primal thing that goes wrong. People worship idols, and the result of that is that their human vocation to be God's image bearers in the world starts to crack and deconstruct and fragment. And the sign of that is what we call sin is to put a label on the stuff that happens when you stop being genuinely human. The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. My name is Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. And we are here for you. <laughs> for you and you and you whoever you are <laughs> the people don't even know what struggle we dealt with in the last two weeks man we had to replace our board we had to upgrade a few things technologically and right now we sound like robots we in do our headphones we do not to you all but right now recording this i sound like a robot <laughs> yes i don't know why We'll get it fixed. But uh, for all of you that support the Deconstructionist podcast uh, financially in any way, yeah. uh, we have basically used all of that at this, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. Uh, we needed to do that so our wives would not kill us when we dip into our college kids, right. co- kids' college fund. It's like I always think of Ghostbusters 1. Uh, we have used the last, you are eating the last of the petty cash <laughs> or whatever, whatever it is when they're eating Chinese food. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, uh, man, it's good. It's good to be here with you guys. Uh, we've got, some, we've got some, some live recorded stuff to bring you today. Yeah, we went on the road. We took this ch- freaking show on the road. We <laughs> yes, really we did. did. And goodness, was it fun. To, to a house with the biggest front door I have ever seen. I want to know if we, we should... We'll tweet it or yeah. something. You took I, a picture, right? I took a picture of yeah. you by the front door for scale. <laughs> I could have brought my pet rhino with me <laughs> through that front door, no problem. Seriously, man. You really could have. Huge. Huge front door in this beautiful community. Um, this beautiful couple was hosting our, uh, our guest yep. on the show today. He was in Cincinnati, Ohio, mm-hmm. doing some stuff at the University of Cincinnati and at a, a local church also nearby. And um, who, who do we got here today, John? We have N.T. freaking right. Again. Again. The return. I hope it's not the last time. We call him Tom. Tizzle. Yeah. <laughs> T-Wizzle. T- yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's uh, his preferred nomenclature. <laughs> giant man crush. Yeah. On this guy. Giant man crush. Just unbelievably nice. And uh, it was a little weird. It was a little surreal. When we locked in this interview, we are giddy. Yeah. Because getting to meet this guy live, give him a hug, which he wasn't. He's English, so I don't know if they hug a lot. Yeah. But I'm a big hugger. He, he, he may have been a, a tiny bit thrown off <laughs> it was like, at first. Oh, oh. He embraced it, but okay. initially he was like, whoa, whoa, oh, oh, okay. But when, jo- <laughs> when John heard that we got this, uh, we got the email back from, from Tom saying, yeah, I'd absolutely do this with you guys. John's first response was, I just hope he smells like English tea and Old Spice. <laughs> <laughs> I did say that, yeah. 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 
You guys don't even know how funny John is. You guys have no idea. I'm the enthusiastic one on the podcast, but John fills my tank with gas with jokes before and after. So, I really can. Um, this was just like a dream come true. I mean, it's kind of like for people that know what nerds we are about this kind of stuff, it's like if there are people um, that we could have met or could meet, I mean, this guy's top of the list. I mean, just a titan. Oh, no question. Uh, the amount of scholarship that he has put forward to, to make us think and rethink and unlearn and relearn and reconsider, uh, which is all of what we're going to get into here today. I mean, there's just, there are very, very few people, I would say, that are still within the sort of traditional church life, church model that are doing such fresh work to help us just really um, open this thing up and consider things from new vantage points that aren't really new. It's, it's again, it's that whole like idea behind the, the word radical of, you know, the, the Latin going back to the root rad meaning root and, and man, nobody tries to do that with more sincerity and more passion than Tom Wright. I mean, that is his goal. Get back to the original way of thinking of this. Yeah. And, uh, it was kind of interesting cause we were one of, I think, I think three interviews he had done that morning and he'd flown in the night before and the, his host said that he, he just hopped off the plane. They went right to the, the venue cause he spoke at a church the night before and just did not seem even mildly tired. He's amazing. It was like, just, okay, let's go. It is. And, and you know what? As soon as we started in, it, it was like flipping on a switch, this like massive intellectual switch where the guy just becomes like Google. Yeah, for theology and philosophy, because he's got multiple degrees in not only theology, he's not only a research scholar for ancient texts doing, you know, we talk a little bit about this, like historical realism and, you know, all this kinds of stuff, but he's also got degrees in philosophy. So he's, he is a fun guy to talk to if you're a super nerd. And we have to find the link because I think they recorded, it was like a kind of a debate style format at University of Cincinnati. The Veritas Forum. And and the interesting thing was, so he obviously took the approach of like the Christianity side, and and then they brought in. I think she was from Yale or somewhere. Um, I, thought she, I thought she was a professor at UC. Maybe she might have been maybe. trained at Yale. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're probably right. But yeah, she she took the philosophy side, but obviously he can he can he can dip a toe in there. <laughs> oh my gosh! But I just I thought his his responses obviously were biased because you know we 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 come from the the Christian side, but of things we would take that approach, but. Um, but I just thought his his responses as a whole were just well more way more thought out and and genuine and loving and he I mean I've seen hostile debates as you have as well um, anybody can get on YouTube and look at you know Christian versus atheistic uh, debates and you know some of those get pretty pretty down and dirty pretty mean spirited but this was uh it was it was really interesting and a, a kind of a neat. It, we didn't. We weren't expecting it. We thought we were just going to go see a talk. Right. Know? I didn't know it was going to be a debate. No. Anyway, this is. You guys are going to love this. Um, there's a different feel for this recording because it's live. Yeah. We're literally sitting in in like a tea room. There's like a grand piano yeah. off to the side. A huge fireplace right behind him. We're all sitting in couches and ar- armchairs, and Tom Wright is sitting freaking right in front of us. So cool. And it was so cool. And <laughs> he was so enthusiastic and engaging and, and excited and passionate. And uh, the things we talk about, a lot of the content is from his newest book, um, The Day the Revolution Began, which if you think this is just a book to teach you about how Jesus died for your sins and stuff like you forget, you don't know anything. <laughs> this book will mess you up yeah. and make you cry out loud and celebrate. And it's amazing. Everybody yeah. needs to read this book. It puts you in a position where you're like, well, I thought I knew a little bit about that, but I guess I was wrong. Yeah. It's wonderful stuff. We talk about sin. We talk about forgiveness. We talk about atonement. We talk a lot about a lot of things on this episode. You guys are really going to enjoy it. And I think we should just yeah, get to it. You, Let's got, any, do it. you got anything else? No. Um, without further ado, we got Tom freaking right. Right.
right, so uh, coming to you live from Cincinnati. Well, it won't be live when, when you all hear this, but we are, we are sitting here with a hero of ours, um, a, a comeback guest, uh, Tom, Dr. N.T. Wright. Thank you so much again for carving out some time to be with us here for tea in Cincinnati before, before you talk at the University of Cincinnati today. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get started, we, we obviously want to talk about the new book, which is uh, incredible and timely. Obviously, we're, we're just shortly post-Easter at the moment. Um, one of the things I would love for you just to spend just a brief amount of time before we jump in, um, I've always appreciated your, your historical research, and, and I know you consider yourself first and foremost a historian, um, and especially in this age of skepticism and that sort of thing. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you call um, your method of historical research, um, I believe you call it uh, critical realism. Yes, it, it's a funny thing because critical realism is a fancy name for doing what <clears throat> people actually do quite a lot of the time anyway. That is to say <clears throat> that whatever it, bit of life you're doing, and the scientific method does the same, you are collecting evidence, you're collecting data, and, and all of our lives we're doing this with our eyes and our ears and our feelings of all sorts, um, that, that we're try and then trying to make sense of it. Um, what, what's, what, what's the pattern here? What's going on here? How does this all work? And so um, in ordinary life, we're doing this all the time so we don't realize we're doing it. We are forming hypotheses mm -hmm. about what seems to be going on. You know, if, if, you, if you walk into a room and try to make sense of a conversation and you just can't understand what's going on and then somebody whispers in your ear, actually, his mother is now seriously ill and we're going to the hospital, suddenly everything that people have said makes sense. Oh, I now see. I get it. I get the picture. Yeah. Um, but then there may be other wrinkles as well, which you go on from there. So you, that forms a, a first platform. And then as you get into the conversation, and it's like that when you're conversing, so to speak, with historical data. Here is a, an, a coin from the first century. Here is a scroll from the Dead Sea. Here's a, a, a thing called Mark's Gospel. Here's a Jewish writer called Josephus. Now, they're all talking about stuff that's happening in the first century. How do we make sense of that? What story are we telling? Um, and as we do that, um, just as in ordinary life, um, total certainty often eludes us, you know, that, that most of human life is a matter of degrees of near certainty, we mm. hope, and that from time to time we're doing approximations. That doesn't mean it isn't perfectly good knowledge. Part of the difficulty is that people, when they, when they realize this, they say, you mean you can't prove it? And by proof, they mean something almost mathematical, you know, two plus two equals four, or something like but Even a scientific formula um, only is valid until the next series of experiments that shows that there's another wrinkle to be done there. Yep. And, and that's how history works. So that um, people used to get, and sometimes still do get, very worried about this. Oh, we can't really know anything about Jesus because the sources are uncertain, etc. So, oh dear, oh dear. And I would say, no, actually, we've got an awful lot that we do know and can know and should know. And the big things are not shouldn't be at issue. Jesus really did announce that God's kingdom was happening. He really did die on a cross. The question then, how would we know about the resurrection is a whole other question, but it can be addressed. And the question about the rise of the early church, we can study that stuff historically. So anyway. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I've appreciated just so much about your work. And a lot of um, what became very new to me when I read alongside your approach that you just kind of laid out is that so much of my life and the people who, with very good intentions, were probably teaching me things, hadn't done a lot of what you're talking about with um, just context mm -hmm. and really trying to get back and put yourself yeah. back in yeah. to that place. And that's what historians do. One of my favorite quotes from the great, he's uh, uh, now dead, sadly, the great British historian Asa Briggs, who was particularly a Victorian historian, he said that historians are trained to think into the minds of people who think differently from ourselves. Wow. Um, and that's what you're constantly doing. The difference about doing first century Jewish and Christian history is that so many first century Jews in their minds, they had this belief that history was reaching its climax. And Jesus agrees with that and says, that's what's happening in my own work. And that's why I'm going to the cross. I mean, I'm summarizing, obviously. And so then the question is, does that make sense? Right. And if so, how? Man, so much of what uh, John and I do and have discovered, you know, in the last, uh, you know, year or so doing this, this project with this podcast is just how, um, how big uh, words are, 
how, just language itself, how much possibility is there and how much of what we read and what we hear just comes down to the use of some words that a lot of people just assume, well, this word means this, and it's always meant this, and it still quite, means this. Quite, and, quite. And that, which is, I think, a very typically Anglo-Saxon approach to language. You interesting. Would, you wouldn't find that in many parts of Germany or France, um, that we have a, a positivist approach to it. I noticed this when we lived in Montreal, um, and there were two classical music radio stations, one Anglophone, the other Francophone. The <laughs> Anglophone one, they would say, we're now going to have such and such music played by such and such an orchestra. In the French station, they would say, we're going to have this music interprété par, interpreted by. Interpreted. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's very typical from English um, positivism to, to continental, um, you know, <laughs> ev it. everything is interpretation. I love it. Yeah. That is amazing. So I, I think one of the, especially in your new book, um, Probably my, my favorite thing you, you've ever written, which means the most to me, is the, the big one on the resurrection of oh, the yeah, Son of okay. God, which I just had you sign because yeah, yeah. it's like hopefully going to be an heirloom in, in my family. Um, one, just the fact that I actually read that many pages of one <laughs> actual book. It's like an achievement, a trophy, if you will, and now a souvenir. But um, when I'm reading this book right here, which um, we're so interested in, your newest book, uh, which the American title, is that the American title? That, that actually is the British title as well. This is the British title yeah, we, as well. We, we capitulated. My American oh, cool. editor wanted to call it that, and my British editor said, oh, well, let's go with that. Oh, just whatever. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't my choice. But, but actually, what happened with titles, and it does happen sometimes, is that the title was um, settled on before the book took its final shape, when I'd done the first draft of it. And then when I was reworking it and doing some lectures based on it and pulling it into final shape, I then allowed the title about the idea of a revolutionary moment uh, to work its way into the text, mm. and which I found quite helpful, actually. Yeah, so this book is called uh, The Day the Revolution Began. And a couple things that I want to kind of start getting into here is, uh, you know, your approach and some of the things. So much of what John and I have read and learned and heard um, over the past year has been, uh, to use a phrase that we use, sort of decentering or deconstructive or, you know, whatever, because it's like, we used to think this, mm -hmm. but now somebody's come along and, and opened it up. And now it's like, oh, I don't know, maybe it's this. Mm -hmm. And so much of what you do in this book is, is so wonderful. You take these basic words, like mm -hmm. some of them I, I want to just use are like sin, forgiveness. Um, atonement. Atonement, <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And And you start to talk about them in a way that goodness, I hadn't heard before using yeah, your historical yeah. approach. So a couple of them that I'd love you to just kind of touch on when we, when we use like the, the, the term sin, which is kind of a, a hot controversial topic. Sure. People don't like to talk about that. When I read it in your book, it sounded so fresh, so different oh. than ever before. If you could just oh. touch on a little bit of what yeah. you uncovered. I mean, one of the things that really struck me um, is that the way people have read Romans tends to be that they do a run landing on Romans 3.23, all sinned and came short of the glory of God. And they assume that that's the sum total of everything Paul has set up to that point. But when Paul begins the great exposition with chapter 1, verse 18, sin isn't the first thing he mentions. The first thing he mentions is idolatry, or rather asabia, which means ungodliness. And for Paul, idolatry, like, like for the Jews, idolatry is the primal thing that goes wrong. People worship idols, and the result of that is that their human vocation to be God's image bearers in the world starts to crack and deconstruct and fragment. And the sign of that is what we call is sin is to put a label on the stuff that happens when you stop being genuinely human. Wow. And, and the, is, does that make sense? And, yes. And, and the, the, reason you, the reason you stop being genuinely human is that you are not totally worshipping the God in whose image you're made. Because if you're an image bearer, that is sustained by worshipping the true God, you are sustained as being an image bearer. And if you're not, if you're secretly worshipping um, Mars or, or Aphrodite or Mammon or whoever, money, sex, power, and so on, right, right, right. then the sort of human you're going to be, instead of being somebody who brings God's love and wisdom and justice into the world, will bring bits of that, but coloured with, tainted by, fragmented through the distortions that you're introducing in your own humanness. And so sin is a much more complicated and actually quite interesting thing in a way. Yeah. As an, as an, the, the problem is that 
the last 200 years, we've all lived in the shadow of Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher. We've all imagined this categorical, categorical imperative hanging in the sky. Yep. And so sin is this list of do's and don'ts. And uh, this is the only thing that really matters about being human is how many of them you've kept or not. And since we know that we've all broken them, oh dear, God has to kill us all. And then suddenly something <laughs> happens. You know. um, right. uh, but, uh, you know, we, we laugh and, and I deliberately caricature. Yeah. However, that is what a lot of people, including a lot of young people, think Christianity is all about. Yes. And so I'm trying to go back to the Bible, what a traditional thing to do, back to the Bible, and say, no, it, it's more interesting and actually dangerous and complicated than that. Oh, man. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I really like uh, about the new book and one of the things that you, you really dive into is um, based off of one of the major criticisms uh, with the Jesus story in regards to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and, and the way that, that especially Western Christianity tends to look at it. And once we start digging into that, uh, we start to ask questions like, did the New Testament writers bend the Jesus story to fit and fulfill the prophecy? But you... You pull from E.P. Sanders a lot and look at the way that the early Jews would have would have viewed this this event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what people don't realize, and it's taken me, you know, most of my adult life really to to get into gear for this, is that a lot of Second Temple Jews were living with an implicit narrative in their heads, which was we came out of Egypt under Moses, we had David and Solomon. Things went bad. We went to Babylon. And even though some of us came back and a lot of us didn't, um, the exile is not really over yet. That's the crucial thing. And it's Daniel 9. And Dan we can see how Daniel 9 is being read and reinterpreted in the Second Temple period. Because Daniel 9, it's, it's this amazing passage, which you know, where Daniel says to the angel, um, we're in exile 70 years, isn't that enough? Didn't Jeremiah say 70 years? And the angel says, no, it's not 70 years, it's 70 times 7 years. Wow. So it's a 490-year extended exile. And we can see other Jewish writers of the Second Temple period picking that up, calculating when the 490 might be up. And we can see Josephus saying that this is what drove them to revolution in the middle of the first century AD, was that in their scriptures there was an oracle which said that at that time a world ruler would arise from Judea. This can only mean the book of Daniel. Now, so when you then say, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, which is an echo of Daniel, then he is saying, this is the moment when all that stuff happens. Um, and one of the things is that if you're in exile because of your sins, then rescue from exile means that somehow sins are being dealt with. Israel is the bearer of the world's fate, as it were. Israel itself has sinned, and so is in exile. That is itself an echo of the story of Adam and Eve being in exile from the garden because of their rebellion, etc. And so Jesus is saying that this great Danielic prophecy has all come true here and now. It only, that, that's why people followed him, because they were on tiptoe for somebody who would say, this is the time, I'm the guy, let's go. Um, except that, of course, Jesus was constantly redefining <laughs> what the return from exile would look like. And yeah. nobody had thought it would mean a crucified Messiah, particularly. Um, how could you think it was going well, to be a crucified it, it, exactly. Messiah? Because nobody was reading Isaiah 53 like that until after, I mean, Jesus himself, I've argued, was, but nobody else had seen it. It was all very oblique. The disciples didn't get it because their game plan was a victory for a Messiah who would sweep all before him. And despite all that Jesus had been showing them and teaching them, they just didn't get it until afterwards, which is part of the story itself. Richard Hayes' brilliant new book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, makes this very clear that after the resurrection, they then, what Richard says, they read backwards. Right. Um, but reading backwards doesn't mean inventing funny stuff that wasn't really there. Or it just means, proof texting. Exactly, exactly. It means, oh my goodness, now we get it. Because uh, it is a whole narrative. The trouble with proof texts is that they are just atomistic, a little bit from here, a little bit from there. Right. And, and that's what I say in the book, um, as you'll have seen, when Paul says the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Bible. In accordance with the Bible means there is a great biblical narrative and it has now reached its climax, not in accordance with the funny schemes that we've got in our heads with a few biblical footnotes sprinkled in like salt and pepper. You know, it's just not not how it works. Man. <laughs> that, you know, I was going to say, and, and, and as a follow-up, they would have never planned uh, a crucifixion because in those days that meant a failed Messiah, right? Exactly, exactly. A crucified Messiah meant a failed Messiah. And crucifixion was very explicitly in the Roman world a way of publicly shaming somebody. Um, and, and we have... 
as you've seen in the book, that there are there are times in Roman history when people are deliberately mocked by the way it's done. You know, somebody who says, but I'm a Roman citizen. And so um, Galba, when he's governor of Spain, he has him crucified twice as high. Oh, you think you're somebody special? Right, we'll give you an even higher cross, you know. And so um, <laughs> uh, when Pilate says king of the Jews about right. Jesus' head, that's what's going on. This is a mockery. And that's part of the meaning of the cross. Um, you know, that he submitted unto death, even the death of the cross in Philippians 2. Right. Um, and 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 this is part of the whole extraordinary thing about what you might call the humility of God in in the New Testament. Mm. Um, God coming with this amazingly self giving generous love and not minding that he's being taken advantage of, as it were. So where, whereas everybody was expecting a powerful savior or a powerful messiah to go against a powerful empire to get them out of this state of being oppressed by power what they got was a a shock and a surprise which is taking us uh, at least two thousand years to start to unpack that's that's right and i mean there have been plenty of people in the history of the church of course who have got it um whether it's francis of assisi or whoever who said no this is what the gospel's all about it's turning upside down of everything and one of the extraordinary things, Francis has this crazy agenda that we're just going to be very poor and go around begging. And and, and within terrible idea. Within fifteen years or so, he has hundreds and hundreds of people yeah, joining in. Yes. How how did that happen? It must be the Holy Spirit. Um, so so I mean, um, but whether it's whether it's Mother Teresa, whether it's Desmond Tutu, different people in different situations have caught the glimpse that this means that the powers are defeated and that there is therefore a different way to be human. That's the crucial thing. I want to come back to that in just a minute, mm-hmm. but we were, mm-hmm. we were already starting to talk and I think a, a juicy topic to, to just start to unpack just a little bit and give some people some teasers to really read this book. I, I cannot recommend this book high enough. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, if you're listening to this podcast and you're going through a, a, a phase of kind of you know, learning new things and opening things up and asking new questions. This is definitely a book you need to add to your list. Um, I love how you approach this word, this sticky word atonement. Mm. I love how you approach that word. It's, it's not at all where, and I thought I was already familiar with your work. It's not at all where I thought you were going to be going or what I ended up reading. If you could talk a little (laughs) bit about the the problem we've gotten ourselves into with this word and kind of what you've found. This is a funny thing because the book was based on some lectures that I did in St. Andrews two or three years ago and I had this series, I think seven lectures and the first one was just sketching out the problems and one of the problems is the word atonement itself and we discussed that in the Q&A after the lecture and uh, you know that we have used the word in the Western church in certain ways which don't correspond to any individual word in the Greek and Hebrew nor do they, nor does it correspond to some of the key German technical terms and yet in English speaking Christianity we've assumed the atonement so then in the Old Testament when you see um, Aaron making atonement for the tabernacle you think what? What's that about? Um, the answer is the word atonement has been used in English as a loose translation for several different ideas, and we have squashed it together and assumed that there is one thing called atonement, and we know what it means. It means Jesus died for our sins and in, in the way that we've understood it. The funny thing after that lecture that I did, I was sketching out all these problems. The following week, I was playing golf with one of my graduate students, who's a much, much better golfer than me, but that's another, <laughs> that's another story. But after a few holes, he said, Professor Wright, in your lecture last week, you raised all these problems. Um, I, I suppose you know how you're going to address and solve them. And actually, I said, Jesse, no, I don't. This is an ex- <laughs> this is a thought this is a thought experiment for me. It's quite serious that I had been le- I've been lecturing and writing about all this stuff all my life, but I'd never sat back and tried to pull all these different things together. And there were one or two of the things that bubbled up at that moment, which then completely shaped how the book eventually turned out six or eight months later when I was writing it. Um, and, uh, uh, and obviously, the whole question of what do we mean by atonement is right in the middle of it. And, and, and in some ways, the book isn't actually about the atonement because the atonement is a much bigger thing. And I was concentrating on this question that in the New Testament, they say again and again that by the time Jesus is dead on Good Friday, the world is a different place. Nobody realizes it till Easter, but something has happened. A revolution has begun um, before Jesus even ra- is raised from the dead, let alone ascends to heaven, let alone does what Hebrews says about, um, you know, the heaven and earth sanctuary being joined and his blood being sprinkled and all that, which is that's difficult for people today to get hold of, but you need all that for a full theology of actual atonement. But you come back, 
in John 12, Jesus says, um, uh, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now is, is the judgment of this world. And he means when he dies. And in Colossians, Paul says he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them. Um, and uh, 1 Corinthians 2, he says something similar. And I don't think we've stopped long enough on this question that by 6 p.m. on Good Friday, the world is a different place. How, how do we understand that and what does it mean? And that's been hugely exciting for me to, to, to explore that in a fresh way. So, I mean, so what, what I think people get so um, hung up on is we, we have this simple formula that we have used in the past to convert people. Yeah. And it means explaining these big terms like we talked about sin, yeah. salvation, um, and we wrap all this up and this is, this is what the atonement means. Yeah. And um, what I caught when you were reading this book is not that you were trying to throw all that out, but almost deepen it, widen it, expand it. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I know because I've lived in that world for a long time, um, how many churches in the broadly evangelical tradition have traditionally presented the gospel. And I want to say, that's a lot better than some things, you know. Simply getting the idea, it's something to do with God and Jesus and Jesus' death and me and God's love for me and that everything's okay because of that. That's a great place to start. Yeah. But the way that it's often articulated has been, and I see this again and again, particularly with young people, that they the story they hear is that there's an angry God with a big stick yes. and Jesus somehow steps in the way and takes the rap, so that's all right. But then a lot of young people, sadly are aware that they have lived in either families or schools or whatever, where there's an angry guy with a big stick who's going to lash out and doesn't much care who. And they, this is why people have said, oh horrors, that the cross is about cosmic child abuse. Right. Now, and I want to say it really, really isn't, but the fact that it isn't doesn't mean that there isn't a doctrine called penal substitution. It's just that there are actually several different ways of doing penal substitution, and it isn't that there's just one way, and that the biblical way has a different narrative. And and the, the way I formulate this, of course, very sharply and a sort of sharp intake of breath when I say this, is people who, uh, though they know what John 3.16 say, the way they preach, it actually comes out as God so hated the world that he killed absolutely. his only son. Yes. And, and, absolutely. And, and there are a lot of... Uh, I was doing a lecture on this in, in St. Andrews just the other day, a book launch, and I'll mention this this evening in my lecture, I think, as well that just when I was thinking, how can I explain this to people and tell them that actually a lot of people do think this, I had an email from a friend who is um, uh, an Anglican chaplain in the Gulf States, and he said that his son had come back from Sunday school and said, Dad, I think I've basically got it, um, that God was really angry with us and was going to kill us all, and then Jesus shed, said, no, look at the scars in my hands, and so God said, oh, all right then, or words to that effect. Uh. And, and this, this friend said, yeah, somehow that's what he's picked up. Yeah, um, that's and, what I picked up as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, as I say, it's not totally wrong. There is something going on there which corresponds to some things in the Bible. But what we've done is we've taken that scheme and we've rammed it down onto Paul and made Romans 3 say that, which it doesn't, um, rather than look at Romans 8, 1 to 4, which is where you do get there is no condemnation because God condemned sin in the flesh. That's the real crunch of, that's penal and substitutionary. But it, it happens within the context of the story of Israel, of the new exodus, of the Holy Spirit, of all of that, where it does make sense. Um, and, and the result is then that people, this is fascinating, people haven't gone to the Gospels to find their atonement theology no. because all you get in the Gospels is um, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So they say, oh, well, the Gospels give you the backstory of how it happened. Right, And right, then right, you go right. to Paul to get the real meaning. And the answer yes. is the Gospels are full of the meaning of what it's about. And if we don't see that, it's because we're not reading them right. So good. <laughs> oh, man. So another thing that um, has been coming out a lot in the past few I don't know, maybe the past year or so, John and I have been talking. I mean, it's something that I think we started just by having beers together, and it's something that kind of came up a lot in conversation, and it just keeps coming up and coming up, and it comes up in this book 
that where a lot of people approach spirituality as uh, almost a way to spiritualize things or a way to become more deified or, you know, find God out there or whatever. Mm-hmm. What I hear a lot in your work is the echoes of what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say those are not mutually exclusive. Right, right, um, right. Uh, but but this, this is a problem. And it's it's interesting that we have that problem because, of course, the early church struggled to say that Jesus was fully divine and fully human. And in a sense, what we're struggling with is a way of ourselves saying that the Holy Spirit really does do a transformative work in us, which is, in the Orthodox tradition, a divinization. Um, right. But that that makes us more human, not right, less. Right, right, right. And and my own teacher George Caird was very strong on the human vocation in Scripture and on Psalm eight and passages like that. Um, Psalm eight is so important in the Gospels and in and in Paul, where you've got. Um, uh, here is God, here are the heavens. What are humans that you take thought for them? Who is the son of man you've made him little lower than the angels to crown him with glory and honor, putting all things in subjection under his feet? And that comes back again and again in the New Testament yeah. because what Jesus does, he does as the truly human one mm. and also as the living embodiment of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So good. And it's as though... Um, Israel itself, as the human people who are in partnership with God, are called to be... It's, it's, why, it's why Israel is called to be the people in whom God comes to dwell in the tabernacle. Because oh. actually, this is all pointing to Jesus as Israel's Messiah, in whom the living God has come. And that's what John says in John one fourteen: the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. So, so that the whole theology of incarnation of divinity and humanity is absolutely rooted in the great biblical story and then flows out through the spirit into, yeah, Christian spirituality, which is the spirituality of God-reflecting humanness, Re- Revelation 5 about the royal priesthood. And, and that's become a really important theme for my own thinking um, ever since I wrote the book on virtue 10 years ago, and the, the idea that we aren't saved in order that we can just go and hang around all day and, and, and do nothing. We are saved to be the royal priesthood in God's new creation. Mm. So good. So one of the big questions that that we run into a lot through our podcast is we have a, a wide variety of listeners, all the way from um, you know fundamentalists, more conservative uh, viewpoints to to folks who are, who are really looking for a spirituality, but are just really having a hard time um, you know, staying within within the constructs of of any kind of spiritual life. So one of the big things that we have an issue with, uh, particularly in, in Western society here, that we're, we're constantly kind of battling with is either this idea that the Bible is inerrant, and it's, it's uh, it, you know, I, I literally had uh, someone, and I was in a conversation the other day, and they said, well, God, God wrote it down, and he wouldn't make us actually have to do any work to, to pull truth from it. It's all right there. <laughs> so we have that, that perspective, or we have the other side where um, it's all just nonsense, and it's old this old historical document that has no, no modern relevance. Yeah. So we're trying to show that there is a, there's a third way. And uh, so, so what do you, what do you say to that specifically? I think we can say, you know, a lot of the stories may be um, metaphorical and may show a, a deeper truth, but when we get down to the resurrection, um, obviously that's a sticking point. So how do we, how do we speak to both of those crowds in a way that, that yeah, makes sense it's, uh, yeah I, I very much understand, but but the two extremes that you mention are, of course, themselves the reflection of the same problem that we're looking at, that yep. one has such a uh, supposedly God-related view that there's nothing human about it, and the other has so much a sort of, it's just yes. a human construct, there's no God in it, and that reflects our Western culture, which has precisely pulled God and humans apart. It's actually enshrined in your constitution in the United States, um, It's <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's enshrined in our unwritten, con- we, we, we don't have a written constitution, but most British people today would hold actually the same view, that God mm-hmm. is over there and world is over there and never the twain shall meet. Right. And and the whole point of a biblical worldview is that the temple theme, for as far back as Genesis 1, is of heaven and earth belonging together in this dangerous, exciting, um, not mixture is the wrong word, combination, um, complementarity. So that then when you approach the Bible like that, then I want to say, 
um, both about the biblical writers and about us as biblical readers, that the Bible is a book which requires you, which demands of you that you grow up. Paul says you've got to be mature in your thinking. Right. Be babes when it comes to evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah. And it's clear that for Paul this means learning to think scripturally. And so um, growing up intellectually uh, and doing business with Scripture, they are two sides of the same coin. Uh, and the more you grow up, whether it's through reading Scripture or through reading science or through reading Plato and Aristotle or whatever, you will come back to Scripture with new questions. And likewise, when you're wrestling with Scripture, it will send you out into the rest of the world with new questions. Yes. And that's as it should be. This is, this is humanizing. But then in terms of the inspiration of Scripture, very clearly we can see when we look at, I mean, I've obviously spent a lot of time studying the letters of Paul, um, the humanness of Paul is on every page. Yes. This is, this is of course, not just dictated. And, and in terms of interpretation, um, people say, well, is it all literal? Is it metaphorical? What is it? And the answer is, like most other great books, it's a rich mixture of all sorts of things. Yes. And if we try and cut it down to size, all we are saying is, actually, we don't want to be biblical Christians. We want to be modern Western rationalists. Oh. Um, yeah. And, and so, uh, but and there is, I mean, there is such a it. there is such a thing as Christian rationalism, um, and and that's you know, reason matters, but it's one part of a larger whole. And there are some things which the rationalist will never get hold of. So to answer your question about in the middle, the resurrection, when you actually look at how resurrection language works, what Jews at the time were meaning by it, it is clear that the claims about Jesus' resurrection are not like the language of um, the Son of Man becoming on the clouds, which is clearly in Jewish literature a wonderful, glorious, complex apocalyptic metaphor for the victory of God's people over all the forces of darkness. Um, and people often take take that literally, either to say right. um, we're still waiting for it or no, but it didn't happen or whatever. Um, but then you, you can tell if you study the texts which bits they mean literally and which bits they mean metaphorically. There are always some loose ends. We can't solve them all. Sure. But it's clear that they actually mean he really did rise again from the dead. That's what the stories about empty tomb and, and so on are about. And so you then have to say, hmm, well, we know that that sort of thing doesn't happen. What's more, they knew that sort of thing doesn't happen. People sometimes say, oh, well, in, in the ancient world, they didn't know the laws of nature, so they assumed that funny things like that happened. No, they knew, <laughs> they, they knew perf perfectly well that dead people don't rise. Um, but then, so why did they say this happened? And the answer is, well, because all the evidence points to the fact that it did and that it was the transformative event which then explains everything else. Um, and so that, if that demands that we say to ourselves, this is not just the most bizarre event within the old world, this is the foundational event within the new world, and it is both of those things simultaneously, then, okay, what this means is, in order to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you have to believe that in and through him, God has launched new creation, mm. and that this makes sense within that world. And then, how are you going to explain that to people? Well, the church from the beginning has been in the business of new creation, by looking after the poor, by campaigning for justice, by um, bringing education to people who wouldn't have it, etc., etc., and this is the sign that a new world has been born. And within that new world, of course it makes sense that God raised Jesus from the dead. So if, if as a rationalist you try to sort of say, well, I'm going to prove to you A plus B plus C plus D, therefore Jesus rose from the dead, and if you don't believe it, you're just stupid. Well, <laughs> no, you need a context. You need to paint the larger context of new creation within which actually that would make sense. And that's what the calling of the church is to do, really, to be the people who do new creation in such a way that it will make sense to say, of course, God raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, man, I love that. Actually, that just a couple questions left. We know you got a full day ahead of you, and we just so appreciate sitting in this beautiful home, and I, I feel like we should have some tea here, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we don't, so imaginary tea. But, you know, based on what you're just saying about this new creation— one of the uh, concepts that I found just absolutely beautiful, um, imagination-inspiring, captivating, is the link that you drew by explaining another word that we take for granted, forgiveness, and linking it with the new creation. That um, I'd love to hear you kind of talk about new creation as forgiveness or resurrection and forgiveness as a new kind of reality that forgiveness 
You, well, you yeah, do it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, well, yes. I mean, it, it is, forgiveness is one of those things which, and it's very interesting cross-culturally, uh, certain cultures um, do not believe in forgiveness at all and regard forgiveness as, as weakness. The first time I was ever in the Middle East, in 1989, I was living in Jerusalem and uh, there was a lot of violence going on. It was during the first intifada and, and all sorts of things were happening on the street. It was really very unpleasant. And I was discussing with a Jewish friend one day, um, you know, how do we work with this and wrestle? And she said to me, of course you realize that forgiveness has never been a virtue here. Said, said, if somebody does something wrong to you, if you believe in, in justice, in God's justice, then that has to be put right by them being punished, by them having to suffer for it. So the idea of forgiveness just strikes people here as, as weakness. And I never realized that before. Wow. I remember coming home as one of the most striking things, realizing I'm glad I lived in a country, Britain, where even though people are not good at forgiving, they at least know that that would be a, an ideal to aim at. That's yes. a starting point. And, and there's something actually about Christian culture and even post-Christian culture where we still sort of believe in it, not entirely and politically, we're not <laughs> sure how that works, but, but, but it's still a good word for us. Yes. Now, so how does it work? And, and then it's this great narrative again of Adam and Eve in the garden and being kicked out and then Israel in the Holy Land and being kicked out because of sins, because of idolatry. So that then when God restores the fortunes of his people, it can only be because the sin and the idolatry has sometimes been somehow been dealt with, that the powers have been defeated, which means that... Uh, and, and it's this business that when you worship an idol... Uh, your humanist deconstructs and so you do things which are sinful and the sins become the chains which the idol has got round your wrists. I get what you're so, saying. So, so you can't break that. But when the power of the idols has been defeated, that happens through your being forgiven so that they no longer have power over you. Man. And that means that then the exodus happens, that Pharaoh has been defeated, Passover happens, we're free to leave, um, new exodus happens, Paul goes out to the Gentile world to say that the idols that have held you captive are no longer functioning and you do not have to worship them anymore. This is why you turn from idols to serve a living God. It isn't just a change of religion. It's that you realize they're a defeated rabble and we've got the living God doing this. And so the fact that you now respond to the gospel is a sign that God has broken those chains and that this is that the reality of forgiveness, I see all of this in the great story of Peter in um, John 21, which I think one or two of my books I've expounded, mm -hmm. that Peter is expecting to be told off, you know, because he's three times denied Jesus. Right. And Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> you know, uh, as, and, but then the, the amazing, and for me in, in ministry, this is so important that we expect Jesus, and Peter expects Jesus to say, well, you really messed up, and there's no way that you can be the rock, that you can be the leader of my people, etc., etc., um, and somebody else is going to do that instead. And we still hear a bit of that, Lord, what about this man, looking at the beloved disciple? Um, but, but instead, Jesus says, St. Peter says, you know that I'm your friend, and Jesus says, look after my lambs, feed my sheep. Um, the word of commissioning is also the word of forgiveness. And that, that's extraordinary. Um, wow. That, that, that somehow, somehow they go together. And so forgiveness is about new creation. That the fact that you're forgiven doesn't just mean the slate's wiped clean. It means that the idols no longer have any power over you. Wow. And you are now being commissioned to be part of the royal priesthood in whatever way that vocation takes. So instead of, instead of taking this really individualistic look at... I've got things that I've done wrong yeah. that, that need to be forgiven so that yeah. God's not mad at me anymore. You're yeah. talking about a whole new way of looking at all of reality yeah. that happened. Absolutely. Uh, but I mean, the individual things really, really, really matter. Sure. And, and, in, and in my tradition, we do confession. Um, we do it publicly all together. And if anyone has something that they just can't shift off their conscience, we say, okay, we have ways of dealing with that. Um, come to me, we will set, We will talk about it, we will pray about it, I will give you the assurance of God's church that you are forgiven. And pastorally, that can be explosively, brilliantly amazing. But the illustration which comes back to me again and again is that that is like fixing something that's radically wrong with your car, you know, that my car just won't start well, okay, we're going to have to deal with this element in the engine or this problem with the starting kit, whatever it is. 
then when we've done that, the big question is, so where are you planning to drive to today? Uh. <laughs> now let's get the map out. Now that we've done that, there's now something something much... Now let's go. And, and uh, so if you think that all it means is, okay, so we can start the car, end of conversation. No, there's a purpose. What were we yeah. doing? Yeah, exactly. What were we, exactly. That vocation that you exactly. come back to, what does it mean to be exactly. human? Oh, exactly. So good. Um, <laughs> uh, a guy that we've come across... Um, in closing, it just made me think of this. I'd love to hear you just continue just a little bit. Uh, this idea of forgiveness being new reality. Um, there's a thinker that we've come across named uh, John Caputo, Jack Caputo. I've heard of him, but I don't know. I think yeah. you'd find it pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So he was a contemporary of Derrida. He did a lot of work okay. with Derrida and then did some stuff on Tillich. And oh, yes. No, I've, I think there's something by him or about him. There's a recent book on Paul and philosophy, um, which, which brings in some you know, of the stuff. You know, I think he may have. Yes. I, yeah, yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I haven't checked yeah, it out yeah. myself. But he talks in one of his books um, about forgiveness. Um, and he's pulling this from Derrida being what he calls, quote, a mad economy. <laughs> because the old way of exacting payment, yeah, the yeah, old yeah. way of getting things back simply don't work anymore. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then since they don't work anymore, well, what do we do? Yeah, because yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the economy starts to fall apart. It's a mad economy. It doesn't make any sense. And it's very interesting to use that metaphor because, of course, one of the things, and I go into this and I think it's surprised by hope, is about global debt and, and yes. about um, the, that actually the real mad economy was, was bankers in the first world lending billions to wild dictators in other parts of the world, right. hoping for interest. And then when the dictators are dead and gone, the poor people left behind are still paying the compound interest uh. because states can't go bankrupt. Um, but then when the big bankers, etc., went bust themselves in 2008, they went to Washington or London to say, please, can we have some money? Yep. And I've said it many times, the very rich did for the very rich what they'd refused to do for the very poor. Yep. Um, and, you know, that is the real mad economy. Right. But, but the actual wise economy would be, and it's written right across the New Testament, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Yes. And, and, and we in the modern West have separated out debts from moral debts, and it's time we put them back together again. I love just thinking about the idea of forgiveness being a reality we live in because, like, um, I pick up from your book, and um, I just read Caputo, so I think the two were oh, just ready oh. to be come together in some kind of weird alchemy that um, it's an impossible reality. It, right. it, it's something that you can't imagine, just like you can't imagine deity and humanity together, yeah, but yeah, there it yeah, is. And you yeah, can't imagine yeah. having a way of living that's... And, the, and the, other, the other example is, of course, Desmond Tutu having a commission for truth and reconciliation where you got black thugs who'd committed murder and white thugs who'd committed murder both coming and saying, yeah, I did this, yes, that was wrong, shouldn't have done it, and now I'm asking for reconciliation and forgiveness and figuring out how to do that. And, yeah, you know, South Africa is still a very difficult and dangerous place, but it did not have the huge bloodbath that was being predicted. You guys are too young to remember, but in the 70s, when apartheid was at its height, all the political commentators were saying, well, this can't last. There is going to be an enormous explosion, and the rest of the world will simply sit back and watch while they slug the guts out of each other, and it'll take decades, and it'll be very bloody. That has not happened because Tutu and lots of others said, forgiveness trumps all that stuff. That is so good. <laughs> I think that's where Are we, we have to end. Yeah. Bless you. Well, thank you thank very you much. Very thank you oh, and, so and much. I, my, my my colleagues in Wisconsin would not forgive me if I didn't say. Yeah. Um, you know about the NT Right Online. Yes, please yes. T- yeah. tell yeah. us a little more what you got well, going on right now that people can dig into. Well, um, NTRightOnline.org has got several courses. I can't even remember them all, but we've got a three-part one on Romans, covering the whole of Romans. There's one on this new book, The Day the Revolution Began. There's one just going live now, based on the Resurrection book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. There's one on Ephesians, there's one on um, uh, early Christian readings of the Old Testament. There's a variety coming up. We're about to record one on Colossians. So these are out there. We've we've actually got, it's we've got, I can't remember the numbers now, something like 10,000 students in over 100 countries, and we've been going less than two years. So it's very exciting. I know my well, dad's doing it. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Well, as you podcast people, you know that once stuff gets out there, word gets around and it's really really exciting well this stuff needs to get around um can't recommend <laughs> your work high enough want to yep. thank you so so much we well, got to wrap up now but um bless you thanks looking very forward good to your to lecture you this afternoon thank, thank you. you very thank much you.
we just interviewed Tom Wright in person. I'm trying to. Mm-hmm. We're not there anymore right now. Like no. this was a couple weeks ago, right? And I still feel the magic. Yeah, yeah. We we had celebratory donuts after this. Yes, as we did. I remember and beers and beers. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. What a cool afternoon. I mean, we got to, we got, we spoke with him obviously in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so we got our questions in and we had this beautiful conversation with him, as you said, in front of a baby grand piano. <laughs> it was a, awesome. In a, in a beautiful house. And then we, we, we got to kind of sit and discuss it and debrief, you know, uh, over lunch. And then we got to see him in this kind of d- debate style format and, and kind of, um, I, I always think it's neat. You, you went through the um, atheism for Lent uh, with, with uh, Dr. Dr. Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins. <laughs> And so I, I, I've always valued um, good criticism. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I don't think that people should shy away from it or, or be afraid, you know, scared of it. Um, and so I thought it was kind of an, a, a really cool, kind of pleasant surprise almost because, you know, we, we had live and in real time, you know, like pretty, pretty good questions and pretty good criticisms. And then you have this guy who is the, like, most reputable like New Testament scholar alive in the world today. So good. Just handling them with grace and, 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 you know, coming back with these beautiful just responses and just, I mean, like you said, the guy is a walking encyclopedia. He's unbelievable. He's like, let me tap into 200 volumes that I read. So you don't have to. (laughs) And you know what, for, for people that are, are wondering why, like the deconstructionists love Tom Wright so much. Mm -hmm. um, If you didn't just get that by listening to him, I would love to give the guy just a little commercial for those of you that are like, I don't know. I've heard he, you know, teaches heresy or, you know, it's just, or on the other side, he's just super conservative evangelical. Here's what I like about Tom Wright. Tom Wright takes the time to first be able to understand the culture and the language of the ancient texts that he is discovering and all the other, you know, accompanying literature from around that time and all the different thinkers and, and cultural influences uh, from military to agriculture to he tries to literally immerse himself in the way of thinking of whatever piece he's considering. And for him, it's mainly the new Testament, which actually isn't very much literature at all. Just, you know, pick up a, a Bible. If you have one, it's, it's a pretty thin stack of pages, the new Testament. And he gets it, on the best, most uh, ground, fundamental uh, root level that he possibly can. And then he just lets it be what it is, the best he can, and, try, and tries to use that as his, like, and it sometimes makes him reconsider his own positions and sometimes makes others around him say, like, whoa, 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 we thought you were on our side. And he's like, I'm just on the side of whatever I find here. Right. I don't want to speak for him, but that's what I get from yeah. listening to him. Yeah, I mean, he's, he said before, um, uh, when I was digging into some of his uh, earlier works in, in regards to how he uh, approaches history and, and how he approaches his own scholarship, and, and what he says he does is he'll take, he'll, he'll, he'll follow the evidence wherever it may lead, Yeah, he'll write his, 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 uh, his works on it, and then he disseminates it out to people that he respects and says, okay, Take a look at it. Tear it to shreds. Yeah, yeah. and, and they, they'll send it back, and he says, you know what? Then you have to take a look at, at good criticisms and say, okay, what's my response to that? Right. And, and that may cause him, you know, as you said, to change his position on certain things or tighten up his argument, you know? There's so much integrity in that. So much of what I see yeah. out there from a theological standpoint is confirmation bias. Yes. Well, let's see. I already believe this, so let's find some people that agree with me. And I'll just champion all of their books and all of their works and all of their perspectives and forget anybody that might disagree with me. Where you've constantly got N.T. Wright engaging guys like Spong and John Dominic Cross and, and you know, before his untimely demise, uh, Marcus Borg. Yeah. And a lot of these guys, in addition to Catholic thinkers and in addition to, um, you know, philosophers and people outside the faith that are you know, the, the, the literature he looks at, like, you know, Josephus is not by any means like a, a Christian. You know, a lot of people have a problem with Josephus. My point is, like, he looks at all of it and does his best to come down to what he thinks is an honest take without any preconceived sort of confirmation bias coming into it. And that is so refreshing to me. And I think that's just why I love the guy so much, because it's so yeah. rare. 
Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I think to use a sports analogy, you know, like no, no uh, famous boxer who was ever a success was a success without a solid sparring partner. Totally. Or, or like at the very least, you know, uh, quality competition. And, you know, and, and those people help you to become greater. And I think that's exactly what he does with his own scholarship. And, and ultimately, that's what we should be doing with our with our positions within these, you know, um, heavy topics within Christianity is, yeah. you know, we, we need to be taking a regular look at what we believe, why we believe it. And, and instead of shutting out criticisms, we should be listening yeah, and, and using that to, you know, to firm up, you know, or, or deconstruct, if you will. Right. You know, uh, those ideas. Totally agree. So he will always have a regular place on here if, and when we can get him because yeah. just the amount of scholarship that he does and the things that he touches on I mean, the concepts that we just hit on in this podcast are like, if you're like me, you're going to be re-listening to this again and just going back and rethinking so many of the things that you thought you knew. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we want here. So, yeah, we're serving up the juice. (laughs) Serving up the juice. And I don't know who the band is this week. Adam and I are barely hanging on for dear life between our new jobs. It's a surprise. So. Check the show notes. If you like it, check the show notes. Check the show notes. Follow us. Uh, follow our playlist on Spotify. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, not next week, but in two weeks, because uh, uh, as you guys know, the season we've been doing every other week, uh, we will start, finally start this project that Adam and I have been working on for a long time uh, but between rescheduling and trying to find the right guest for these topics um, we're going to start our series on um, religious diversity or oh, religious man. pluralism. So good. So um, we're super excited to roll that out. So uh, um, hang in there uh, in about two weeks, uh, hopefully that Tuesday night, two weeks from whenever now is. <laughs> so we'll have good. our first episode out, and um, hopefully that'll, that'll uh, initiate some, some good conversation. So we're excited to do that. Thanks so much to all of you that are supporting us by buying merch. Uh, hope, hopefully you like yeah. the pint glasses. We got a few of those left. Not a ton. Not a ton. But we definitely have some pint glasses left, plenty of shirts, and uh, we do just take free gifts if you, <laughs> if you are so moved by the Spirit yes. to do that. Yes, we, we love you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for hanging out and drinking what we serve up here. It's a blast to do this with you guys. Um, do it in community. Do it with friends. Be open. Have fun. Have fun. And by all means, keep deconstructing. For now, we're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Catch you guys next time. We call that old cabin the whippoorwill. Drawing up plans from
spell 